Dorothy Sayers is perhaps best known for one of two things. She wrote a series of novels, mystery novels, featuring a character called Lord Peter Whimsey. Now, Lord Peter Whimsey is not as iconic as Sherlock Holmes, and he's probably not even as famous as Hercule Poirot, but Lord Peter Whimsey still has his place in the pantheon of great mystery solvers, great uh, mystery novel characters, and uh, Dorothy Sayers' mystery uh, books are still being read today. And she's also famous for an essay she wrote called The Lost Tools of Learning. And that essay was about education, and it sort of spurred the uh, renewal of, of what we call classical education, specifically classical Christian education, that is thriving and growing today. But what she's not as well known for is that not only was she a Christian, but she wrote a theological book called The Mind of the Maker. And as a writer, as a, as a creator, right, a, a creator of mystery novels and, uh, and fiction, uh, she sought to explore in that book what it meant for us to call God creator by thinking about how we create, how people create, because we're made in the image of God. And so our work of creating, whether it's building something or writing something or drawing something or whatever, is in some way mirroring or imaging God as creator. But we're going to talk about God as creator next week, Lord willing. This morning we're talking about God as father. And there's something Dorothy Sayers said in that book that's helpful for us to remember as we Consider what it means this morning to call God Father. She said, and she's just echoing Thomas Aquinas, who said this long before her, that we speak of God by way of analogy. And what that means is, because God is different than us, there's only one of Him, Right? He alone is the truly eternal one, has no beginning and no end. He alone is the creator who made all things out of nothing. When we speak about God using language we understand, like father, creator, etc., we're using those words as, as sort of analogies. In other words, we don't, when we call God father, we don't mean that he's exactly the same kind of father that I am or that you are, or your father is. He, he's not a father in the exact same way, or in all the same ways that I'm a father, or that my father is a father. But there's something about being a human father that communicates something true about God as father. And so what we're going to look at this morning is what the scriptures say about God being the father. Why do we call him the father? Who is he the father of? How is he the father? Because this is a core part of what the Bible teaches us about God. It's a core piece of our Christian confession. And so we're going to uh, spend some time considering what the Bible says about God as our father. Why the Bible calls God our father. 
Now, again, in this series of sermons, we're using the Apostles' Creed as our outline of major doctrines from Scripture that we want to consider together, remind ourselves of, refresh uh, our, our knowledge and understanding, and even our awe at who God is and what God has done for us. And so the phrase that we're focusing on this morning is, we believe in God the Father Almighty. So we're going to talk about what it means to believe in God, first of all, as simple as that is, it's quite significant and profound, and then what it means to believe in God the Father, why we call Him Father, who is He the Father of and how, and then lastly, what it means to believe in God the Father Almighty, the comfort from knowing that our God who's our Father, is also the one who is Almighty. So first let's focus in on what it means for us to say together, to confess together, we believe in God. That's a fitting place to start because that's where the Bible starts, right? The very first line of the Bible says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before there was anything else, there was God. He was already there in the beginning because he had always existed. And all the way through the Bible, the whole Bible is about God. All the way to the last chapter of Revelation, the focus is on God from beginning to end. The Bible is not ultimately about Israel. It's not ultimately about the church. It's not ultimately about you and I, though all of those are significant. The Bible is ultimately and primarily about God himself. Begins and ends with God, so it's fitting that's where we begin, with believing in God. Now, in one sense, everybody knows that God exists. The Bible makes very clear that God has not hidden his existence from his creation. In fact, the Bible says in Psalm 19, verse 1, that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. The creation itself, in other words, is preaching sermons day and night about God, Psalm 19 says. Always telling us, there's a Creator, there's a God out here who made all this. You see how beautiful and wonderful and orderly and wise the universe has been made. There is a wise and good Creator who put us here. Paul expands on that concept in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, where he says, what can be known about God is plain to them, that is to humanity, to mankind. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. You might say, well, how has he done that? Paul says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, Paul says. There's nobody on the planet, in other words, who doesn't know that there's a God. You don't have to live close to a church. You don't have to have ever read or heard the Bible. You don't have to have ever encountered a Christian to know that there is a God. That's why most of the people uh, in most of the world, for most of the history of humanity, have sought to worship something. Even when they've gotten it wrong, they've known there's something out there. Something beyond us. Something greater than us. And there are some, of course, who uh, 
deny that God exists at all, right? Psalm 14, verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. He knows better, but he still rejects God. For most, though, it's not an outright denial of the existence of God that gets them in trouble. But instead, it is a trading of the creator God for created things. So back in that passage in Romans chapter 1, Paul explains what happens to these people, to us, to humanity. They recognize that there's a God in creation. They don't have any excuse for not worshiping Him, not thanking Him, because they know He's there, but here's what they do instead. Paul says, For although they knew God, they knew He was there, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They didn't honor the Creator. They traded Him for creation. They worshipped things that looked like things that God had made. That's how people typically respond to what God has revealed about Himself in creation. He says, I'm here. Look what I have made. And they say, ooh, look at what He made. I'll take that. Instead of worshipping and honoring Him. So lots of people agree that some kind of God exists, but most people worship some sort of distortion of God, some created thing, some some small g God fashioned in the image of men or animals or whatever, some kind of possession, some kind of glory they seek to uh, pursue or give themselves to rather than worshiping and glorifying God. But a lot of people at least acknowledge that there is a God. But we do more than that. We need to do more than that. As Christians, we don't merely acknowledge that some kind of God exists. We believe that one particular God exists. And we don't just acknowledge that He exists. We believe in Him. We entrust ourselves to Him. Lots of people believe that there's a God without that God changing their lives in any significant way. It's kind of like, you know, I believe Australia exists. I've never been there. Australia doesn't really affect my life on any given day. I just, you know, I don't think about it much. I know it's there. A lot of people, that's how they interact with God. They know He's there somewhere, right? but they don't talk to Him. They don't seek to obey Him, honor Him, listen to Him. They don't, they don't want to get to know Him. They just know He's out there somewhere. But when we say that we believe in God, right, we're saying much, much more than that. We're saying we are convinced that God exists and that His existence matters. That His existence changes everything And that our hope, our confidence is in Him. The Bible says this is the ground level starting place for us. In Hebrews 11.6 it says, Without faith it is impossible to, to please Him, that is to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. 
So you, you have to start with, God exists, I believe that He exists, and I believe that He's good. I believe that if I seek Him, He will reward me. And if I seek Him, I will find Him. That He's a, a good God. That, that's the baseline. right? So we believe in God, we trust in God, we put our hope in God, we put our confidence in God. That's what we are saying when we confess together, we believe in God the Father Almighty, that we entrust ourselves to God. We don't just acknowledge He exists, but we put our faith in Him. Now, why do we call God Father. When we say we believe in God, again, we're, we're confessing faith in a particular God. And the Bible says that this God is the one true and living God. And that He eternally exists in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we believe in the Trinity. And as we go through these major doctrines in the Apostles' Creed, we're going to talk about each person. This morning, the Father. We'll talk later about God the Son. And we'll talk later about God the Holy Spirit. But it's important to say it here at the outset. We're talking about the triune God. The one God who eternally exists in three persons. But this morning, we're focusing on God the Father. Now, why do we call Him God the Father? Who is He the Father of? In what way is he a father or the father? Well, first of all, he is the father of his son, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. Again, God has eternally existed as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so he is the father, God the Father, of God the Son. God himself declared this when the Son of God took on flesh and was born of the Virgin, Right? And he was named Jesus, and he lived, and he ministered, and he died on the cross, and he rose again, and, and so on. At the outset of his ministry, he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Remember, this was sort of the, the launching pad for Jesus' public ministry. And when that happened, we're told in Matthew 3, it says, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God the Father spoke from heaven and said, that's my son. That's my son, which means I'm his father, and I'm pleased with him. Later, a similar thing happened when Jesus took three of his disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus' appearance was transformed before them so that they saw his eternal glory that was veiled most of the time during his uh, earthly ministry. Right? They, they saw his clothes transform. They saw his, his face shine like the sun. And again, we're told this in Matthew 17. It says, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. This is my son. I'm his father. And I want you to listen to him. Jesus often spoke, spoke of himself as the Son, and spoke of His Father. For example, in John 5, 19, He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father do. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And in Matthew 11, He prayed and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
He said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus came as the Son of God who took on flesh to reveal to us His Father. God the Father. Perhaps the most famous statement tells us of this relationship between the Father and the Son is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And Paul, too, when he uh, speaks a word of blessing to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 1.3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we call Him God the Father in part because He is the Father of the Son, Jesus Christ. In what way, though, is He the Father of God the Son? That's where it gets a little more difficult, right? We want to be careful here because uh, there have been some uh, serious misunderstandings about what this Father language means when we apply it to God. It does not mean that God had a wife. God is not, the, not a Father in the same way that I'm a Father. right? He did not have a wife, Instead, he eternally, outside of time, right, with no beginning, begot his son. Right, so when we say that God is the Father and that Jesus is the Son, we don't mean, like we usually mean with human fathers and human sons, that the Father existed before the Son. Because if the Father existed before the Son, then the Son can't be eternally God, right? And that's what John wants to make sure we don't think about the Son when he says in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he goes on to say in verse 3 that all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In other words, the Son, who here John's calling the Word, who later he says became flesh, Right? The Word, the Son of God, was not made. He was not created. Everything else was created through Him. So yes, He's the Son of the Father, but not, not less than the Father. He's not after the Father. He is eternally with the Father as His eternal Son. Now we can't wrap our minds completely around that. Right? And that's why uh, it's so important, right? what, what Dorothy Sayers was saying, that we speak of God by way of analogy. If you try to take the Father language of God in the Bible too, too literally, you end up denying other things that the Bible said. If you said, well, fathers, right, to beget sons, have to have wives, well, now you're in real trouble. Right? Or if you say, well, fathers come before their sons, so there must have been a time when the son didn't exist. That's an old heresy called Arianism. There was a time when the Son was not. Deny His full deity because He's not eternal if there was a time when He didn't exist. Sons typically are lesser than their fathers, at least for a time. right? Less power, less authority, less privilege because they're younger, their fathers are older. That's not true of God the Son because He's fully and truly God. And as One who's fully and truly God, he has the same privileges, priority, 
prestige, honor, glory as the Father. So we have to be careful about what we, what we say we mean when we say God is the Father of the Son. John says later in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to reveal what only He could reveal, which is the glory of the Father that He shares fully with His, uh, with his Son. Right? Because they are equally, truly God. Now, God is not only called Father because He's the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's also called God the Father in part because He's our Father if we're in Christ. He's the Father of His people. This is true even in the Old Testament. I remember in the Old Testament when the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt and God had sort of a, a showdown with Pharaoh. The outcome was never in doubt, right? But, but God was sort of pounding on Pharaoh's heart, showing his power to his people, uh, making a name for himself in the world uh, by conquering this great and mighty uh, Egyptian kingdom. And that climax, that those, those uh, plagues climax with the death of the firstborn sons in Egypt. What we often forget or don't think about is why God chose to end that showdown with the death of the firstborn sons. He told Pharaoh at the very beginning what would happen if he didn't let his people go. Here's what he said in Exodus chapter 4. He's giving instructions to Moses. And he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. All the way back in Exodus, God was saying, my people are my son, my children. I'm their father. And if you don't let them go, there will be a price to pay. Because my children are coming with me. They are going free. Again, in Hosea 11.1, 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And then, of course, in the New Testament, the Bible makes very clear that God is our Father. Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, told them to pray this way. Our Father. John 1, again, tells us what happens to those who receive Jesus. It says, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Now, how does that happen? John says, Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We become God's children when we believe in Jesus the Messiah, the Savior. And that birth comes about not by any human means, but by God's means. That's why Jesus will say later to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. You have to be born of the Holy Spirit. There is a new birth, a supernatural birth that has to take place in order for you to be a child of God. So how does God become our Father. 
Well, the short answer is by adoption. I think the most beautiful way the Bible puts this is in Galatians chapter 4. When Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That means to confess that you believe in God the Father is to go right to the heart of the gospel. Because it is God the Father who sent God the Son to save you and I so that we could be sons. So that we could call Him Father. So that we could no longer be strangers and aliens or people exiled from God because of our sin. But that we could be reconciled to God so that we could be adopted into His family. And then He sent the Spirit of His Son, the Holy Spirit of God, to dwell inside of us. To teach us and enable us to cry out to God calling Him Father. Because that's an audacious thing to do if you don't have a good reason to do it. To call the holy, creative, uh, creator, eternal God, whom we've sinned against, whom we, we've ignored, we've rebelled against, we've, we've gone against His will, His word, His ways, to then come before Him in prayer, in boldness, and say, Father, I need You. I need Your mercy. I need Your help. I need Your forgiveness. I need to call Him Father. We have to have good grounds for that. And Paul's saying we do. God sent His Spirit into our hearts to enable us to call God Father. And He did that because He gave His Son to die in our place for our sin, to rise again so that all who receive Him, all who believe in Him, would become God's sons, God's children. Now, last thing. We believe not only in God, we believe in a particular God, we believe in God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but we believe in God the Father Almighty. Now, this is really good news, because what this is reminding us is that the God we believe in, the God we have been given the privilege of calling Father, is also the God who is Almighty, who is all-powerful, who is omnipotent. There's nothing good that this God can't do. Fathers are supposed to be strong, right? And also gentle. And that's exactly what Isaiah tells us about God in Isaiah 40. When he says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. And then he also says, He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those who are with young. We want our, our Father to be strong so He can fight for us. We want Him to be gentle so that He'll be tender with us. And Isaiah says, that's the kind of God you have. A God who is almighty and also is gentle like a shepherd. 
He goes on to say later, To whom then will you compare me, talking about God, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Look at the sun, the moon, the stars. Who created those? He says, He brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The least of the things that we see in the sky, like the moon, the moon moves the ocean. And that's the smallest thing in the sky. And God says, every one of those things you see in the sky, they are there and they are kept there by my power. And I'm the God, he says, who gives power to the faint. Later in the same chapter, he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. If you are his child, if you trust in him, if, you're, if you believe in him, his power, his might is not against you, but for you. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, right? He is for us. This God is for us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But God is for us. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? Because the God who is for us is God the Father Almighty, who sent the eternal Son to show us the Father, to bring us into the Father's family, to make us His sons, so that by His grace we could be children of God. And in our weakness and in our need and in our fear and in our anxiety and in our distress and at times desperation, we can call on Him and say, Our Father. Let's pray.